This system of man-centered works righteousness, it is an affront to God and it needs to die. turn our thoughts this morning to the topic of this triumphal entrance into the holy city. Now, last year, if you can remember a year ago, we had that message. The name of the message was Hosanna. If you want to refresh your memory of that from last year, the main takeaway from last year's message was that Jesus's entrance into the holy city was an acting out, a precursor of his next entrance into the holy city, which is the one that we await when he returns. So that's what we looked at last time on on Triumphal Entrance Sunday. Today we're going to look at the next episode that occurs right after that. And that's the episode that's often referred to as the cleansing of the temple, the very next thing that Jesus does after he enters into the holy city. So we'll look this morning at Mark's account of this because Mark's account is the fullest account of this episode known as the cleansing of the temple. So we'll be looking at Mark chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, then you'll find our text on page 1009. This episode is connected together with another episode known as the cursing of the fig tree. When Jesus curses the fig tree, that episode was going to begin in verse 12. And so we'll be looking this morning from verses 12 down through verse 26 or 25. So let's begin by reading our passage together, starting from verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So here is our text for this morning. These, These two incidents sandwiched together in Mark's favorite technique of sandwiching or bracketing in which he has two stories told together and he interrupts the first one to tell the second one and then comes back to complete the first one. We saw this already in chapter three as he's already introduced this technique for us. He's going to use it many more times, but here we come to chapter 11 and the technique here is just going to work wonderfully for us as he's sandwiching these two events together. Matthew also puts these two events together, but Matthew tells of the cleansing incident, the the throwing out of of the temple, and then he follows that up with the cursing of the fig tree. 
However, Mark's method is going to be very effective for us as we seek to properly understand this passage this morning, because this, quite frankly, are two of the most problematic episodes in the life of Jesus, two of the most perplexing events in Jesus's life. Many people have been vexed to try to understand what exactly these passages are saying to us, because they, on the surface, they just seem so odd to us, so out of place, particularly the first incident of Jesus's cursing of the fig tree. It seems to be such a incident that is out of character of Jesus. Here he is, we're told that he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and he goes over to get some figs to eat some figs. And Mark tells us that it's not the season for figs to be on the tree. And he finds nothing on the tree and he just seems to be so angry that he curses a fig tree, an inanimate object. And then the fig tree dies. And it just seems so out of character for Jesus. This is his last miracle that he will perform. And it is completely different from every miracle that he's performed up to this point. Jesus's first miracle and his last miracle are sort of unique. Remember, his first miracle was the changing the water to the wine at the wedding at Cana. And that was sort of an odd miracle because that miracle was not about restoring somebody's sight or saving somebody's life or cleansing a leper. It was about saving face for some acquaintances who didn't plan properly for the wedding and were running out of wine. But this miracle is even more strange. As Jesus' last miracle, this is the only miracle that he ever performs that is a miracle of destruction, not a miracle of restoration. It doesn't bring life. It doesn't bring safety. It doesn't bring restored eyesight. It doesn't cleanse a leper. It doesn't cast out a demon. It destroys. It takes life instead of gives life. Furthermore, it seems to be a miracle, the only miracle that Jesus performs out of anger. Now, we are told that he's angry in other instances. We just recently saw how Jesus was said to be angry in the synagogue when the Pharisees were watching him to see if he would heal the man's withered hand on the Sabbath. So we're told that he was angry. He looked at them with anger. But here, Jesus seems to be acting out of anger towards an inanimate object. Have you ever been angry at an inanimate object? Like you step on a Lego and and you're mad at the Lego? And then later you realize how foolish to be mad at an object like that. Jesus seems to be mad at the tree, curses the tree. The tree then dies. And then comes this next episode when he's angry and throwing people out of the temple. So what are we to make of this? On the surface, it just seems, again, just so out of character. Many of the commentators that I read about this passage really struggle to find anything in it worthy of of the Son of God. One commentator calls it a gross injustice carried out on an innocent tree. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist who wrote in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, he references this episode and said, this episode seems to be so beneath the character of even a righteous man, much less the son of God. So what are we to make of this problematic view of Jesus, this problematic occurrence, this incident in which This just seems so perplexing and out of place for us. So as we look at this incident, what we're going to take a look at this morning is we're going to look first at the temple incident, the the throwing the people out of the temple. And then we'll come back and we'll look finally at the tree. And we're going to see, as Mark 
unfolds these events for us, always what he's doing is he's helping us to understand the two of them together. And as he puts them together, he's helping us to see the overall point. So we'll begin with the center passage, the passage of the what's known as the cleansing of the temple. So in this incident, let's just read again from verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So in this incident, a number of interpretations have been offered up as to what it is that Jesus is actually trying to accomplish. What is his rebuke directed toward and what what sort of goal does he hope to achieve by throwing these people out of the temple? So one view has it that Jesus was angry that the Gentile worshipers were being prevented from coming and worshiping in this temple because Jesus enters the temple. Now, now he doesn't enter the temple proper, but he enters into the temple, what's known as the temple courtyard, the outer courtyard. The temple, of course, there was the building itself that was the temple, that inside that building was the Holy of Holies. Then outside of that was another courtyard for Jewish men and then another for Jewish women. And then there was the larger courtyard that's known of as the court of the Gentiles. And so it's been said that perhaps Jesus was angry that these Gentiles who were coming to worship were being impeded from their worship because Jesus does say, after all, that my father's house, reckoning us back to, of course, when Jesus was a young boy and even then calling this his father's house, Jesus says, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. So maybe what this is indicating for us is that these, Jesus is upset that these Gentile worshipers are being impeded in their worship or in their prayer because all these animals and money changing, going, taking hands, all these people. It's just like this picture in your mind, sort of a chaotic environment with animals being bought and sold, money changing, being taken place, of, taking place at the tables and lots of people and lots of activity and chaos everywhere. And so Jesus is angry that they are not being allowed to worship. Well, that is not a completely satisfying explanation for a couple of reasons. First, we have good evidence to suggest to us that the outer courtyard was never considered to be a holy area. The outermost courtyard was considered to be just that, just a courtyard. It's called the court of the Gentiles, but that is actually a modern term. In Jesus's day, it was not known as the court of Gentiles. It was just known as the outer court. So modern scholars have attached the name court of the Gentiles to this because there was, as we know, there's this sign on the edge of this courtyard that that precluded any foreigner or Gentile from entering into the actual courtyard or the inner courtyard. You may have heard of this sign. Archaeologists have discovered these signs that literally say any foreigner who goes beyond this point, you do so at your own, the risk of your own life and your own impending death is your own fault. So we've discovered these signs and we know that any entrance beyond this outer courtyard by a Gentile or a foreigner was absolutely excluded. So scholars have called it the court of the Gentiles, but it wasn't called by that in Jesus' day. And there's no evidence at all to suggest that this was considered by anybody to be a holy area. Furthermore, We also know that the buying and selling and the money changing that's referenced in the passage here was said to have taken place in a smaller sort of secluded area known as the Royal Shoah. Now, that area was sort of sequestered off, I'm trying to say, for the buying and selling and the money changing. And so the area in itself wasn't consumed by all these activities. 
But then I think for me, the most compelling indication is just the size of the area itself. This outer courtyard was some 500 yards by 350 yards. Now, to kind of put that in perspective, 500 yards by 350 yards, of course, equates to 1,500 feet by about 1,000 feet. So picture in your mind just an incredible area. To equate this in terms of um, acreage, it literally translates to nearly 35 acres. That is a massive area. This is a huge courtyard. And so the size of the place itself lends itself to just understanding that this wasn't considered this huge holy area. This was just what it was. It was a large outer courtyard. So the, the idea that Jesus was angry that these Gentile worshipers weren't being allowed to worship just doesn't really hold a lot of water because the area was so large. The buying and selling that's referenced was sanctioned off into one area. And furthermore, there's no evidence that the Jewish people ever considered this to be a holy spot anyway. So another thought is that perhaps Jesus was angry that the people were being taken advantage of. There's the, the reference to the money changers and the buying and selling of the, of the animals and the doves and the pigeons for the sacrifices and whatnot. And Jesus does make that statement that you've turned this into a, a den of robbers. And so oftentimes it's been... Suppose that Jesus was upset that the people were being taken advantage of for the profit of the priests. And that was true. The priests, particularly the high priests, did get rich. They did get very wealthy off of this because all the money changing that took place and the selling of animals, all of that profited the priests. And so as the, uh, the animals were being sold, of course, they were sold for a profit. Now, you could, of course, bring your own animals to sacrifice them. But those animals had to be approved by the priest to be indeed without blemish and worthy of being sacrificed. And so oftentimes the animals that you brought just wouldn't be found to be worthy. And oh, by the way, we do have animals that you can buy and here's our price. And so the priest profited from all that. And so all that is very true. It's also true that the money changing profited the priests as well. So why were they changing money in the temple courtyard? Well, the money changers were there in order to change into the proper currency for all the worshipers to pay what's known as the temple tax that had to be paid each year by every, uh, by every Jewish man. So the temple tax was set in Exodus chapter 30 as half a shekel a year. Now, they had to pay the tax in a certain type of currency because the Roman currency wouldn't work or any of the other currencies wouldn't work because of two reasons. First of all, the Roman currency in particular was usually a currency that was made from metals that were alloys. And so it would be two types of metals together, making what we know of as an alloy type of metal. And so the Jewish people considered that to be a violation of the commandment. Um, and, but then the main reason was because all the Jewish, Jewish coins had an image on it, the image of Caesar, right? Remember the story where they come to Jesus and they say, should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, show me a denarius. And he says, whose image is this? Then give it to Caesar then. So the Roman coins had an image of Caesar, which the Jewish people considered to be idolatry, a, a violation of the second commandment against graven images. And so for those reasons, the temple tax couldn't be put into the temple coffers in Roman coinage. There was only one currency that, was, that would fit the Jewish regulations, and that was known as the Tyrrhenian shekel. Now, Tyrrhenian, that's just the adjective form of Tyre. You know, Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre... 
had a shekel that was a solid metal coin and didn't have an image of a person on it. So all the money to pay the temple tax had to be changed into Tyrrhenian shekels in order to pay the tax. Now, it was usually done, or not usually, it was always done with a fee, and scholars tell us that that fee would range between 5 and 12%. So the priests profited from the changing of money as well. So it was profitable for the priests, and so many people supposed that perhaps Jesus was just not happy that the people were taking, being taken advantage of by, in essence, charging them a fee to come and sacrifice animals or to pay the temple tax. Now, Jesus probably was not very happy about that, but that also doesn't seem to be the reason why he does this. And the reason that we see that is because Jesus plainly throws out not just the sellers, who are the ones, the ones taking advantage of the people, but the buyers too. The text is plain there. So why would Jesus, if he's angry that the people are being taken advantage of, why would he throw out both the buyers and the sellers? The, so Jesus instead, he's, he's probably, again, not real happy that they're being taken advantage of, but that's not what's behind this. Instead, for us to see what Jesus intends, what his purpose, what his goal here is, we just, I think, simply need to ask one key question. And that key question is this. Why would Jesus be seeking to cleanse or reform the very thing that he has declared repeatedly needs to die? The very thing that he has declared needs to go away. All the way back from chapter 2, this is, uh, we, I know we're in chapter 11 of Mark now, we sort of skipped over, but we'll see this theme carried all the way through Mark's gospel, but already in the early chapters, we've seen it. When Jesus has declared, of course, the patch, the new patch that doesn't fit the old garment, it means that the new is not compatible with the old. The old system of legalistic man's, man works righteousness has to go. Or the new wine that is not compatible with the old wineskins has to go. So why would Jesus be interested in reforming or cleansing? Because that's the, that's the meaning of cleanse, right? To cleanse something means that you are seeking to remove from it impurities to restore it back to its original function. Why would Jesus be seeking to do that for an institution that he has declared repeatedly is apostate and needs to go. Instead, we will see that this is the most misnamed passage in all of the gospel incidents because Jesus is here to cleanse nothing. I would be willing to wager that probably every Bible in the room has a subheading on this section that says something to the effect of Jesus cleanses the temple. He's not cleansing anything. He's here to destroy it. He's here to declare it dead and buried. He's here to say this corrupt system of works righteousness has to die. And so this is what Jesus is here in the temple to do. We have seen him say this from chapter early on from chapter two with, the, again, the wineskins parable, the new patch parable parable. He's going to say this plainly in chapter three and verse two, when the disciples are going to say to Jesus as they walk out of the temple, they're going to say, Jesus, look at this wonderful building. Isn't this amazing? And Jesus is going to respond, every stone will be torn down. There won't be two stones left together. Everyone is about to be torn down. So what is Jesus up to and what point is he trying to make and why is he going about it in this way? 
So let's look at the text. And as we begin to look at the text, let's just put this into our mind. Let's just remind ourselves that Jesus is, of course, Messiah. Jesus is king. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is also our prophet. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is the great prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us that when God says, I will raise up a prophet and he will speak for me. And God, of course, is pointing us not only to the prophets that would follow Moses, but to Jesus, who is the great prophet. So Jesus is the great prophet. Now, what do prophets do? Prophets do two things. Prophets speak for God. Remember, that's what the prophets would say. Thus says the Lord. So prophets speak for God, but prophets also do something else. Prophets also act out the lessons that God wants to teach. We see this happening time and time again throughout the Old Testament. There's so many examples of the prophets acting out some lesson or some sort of truth that God wants them to act out for the people. Just think of of Isaiah when Isaiah was told to walk barefoot and naked. Or remember Ezekiel chapter 4 when Ezekiel was told to take the bricks and make a little miniature Jerusalem and then put that little miniature Jerusalem under siege to say, this is what is coming. Or just think of uh, the prophet Jeremiah, when Jeremiah puts the yoke on his shoulders, and then the other prophet by the name of Hananiah comes and breaks the yoke. And God says, as this yoke is broken, so I will break Nebuchadnezzar's yoke. And so many other instances. Think of Jeremiah, who can forget the potter? The potter's, uh, the potter's flask that was broken and that whole illustration of the potter. That's what prophets do. They speak for the Lord, but they also act out for the Lord. And so this is what Jesus is here to do. He is here to act out in demonstration mode the truth, the reality that he's been teaching since chapter 2 and will culminate in chapter 3, which is the reality to say this apostate man-centered, works-righteousness system of hypocrisy is dead, and I'm declaring it done and through with this. And so when Jesus comes here, he's going to declare God's outrage or God's dissatisfaction, with particularly with three things. Let's take a look in the text once again. So he came to Jerusalem, entered the temple, and began to drive out those who, first of all, sold and those who bought in the temple. So those who are selling and buying. Secondly, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Thirdly, he won't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So three things that Jesus seems to be focused on. One is buying and selling. Two, money changing. Three, carrying things through the temple. So these three things that Jesus seems to be opposed to, if we think about these in categories... He is opposed to the buying and selling, the money changing, and carrying things through the temple. The carrying things through the temple, that's a tough one. So some people think that maybe Jesus was not happy that some people were using the temple courtyard as a shortcut. They were sort of making a shortcut through the temple courtyard. Jesus wasn't happy about that, so he stopped people from carrying things through the courtyard. That doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not even said to be the Sabbath. Maybe it was the Sabbath, but... What is this about carrying things? Well, if we think about the word here, translated carry anything, the word anything, that's not the standard sort of generic word for anything. Instead, it's a word that is often associated with vessels of worship, vessels that had to do with temple worship. So we put all these three things together. 
Jesus stops the money changing, the selling of animals for sacrificing, the buying of animals for sacrificing, and the carrying of worship vessels. In other words, Jesus is here to shut down all the activities that make the temple function. If animals are not bought and sold, then there's no sacrifices. If the temple tax is not paid, that's what supports the temple. That's what funds the temple. And then if the worship vessels, the accoutrements for worship are not carried in and out of the temple, then that stops the temple worship. In other words, Jesus is symbolically putting a stop to the temple activities. Now, he's not doing that in reality. It's not like Jesus is shutting the temple down. This is all symbolic. This is metaphorical. And so one man is not going to just shut down the temple activities, but instead what he's doing is he's symbolically attacking each thing that needs to happen in order for the temple to function. Because Jesus is saying very loudly and very clearly, this system of man-centered works righteousness, it is an affront to God and it needs to die. 